Let's see. Would you bring the given slide up real quickly? We're going to try to kind of change our order up in the near future. We're going to continue as we observe the arrival of Christ. We've said that that's what Advent means. It means arrival. Christ came. And so we continue to think about that in this season of Christmas. And if you'll turn to Matthew chapter 12 or follow along on your device, we'll uh, take a look at the scripture there. In uh, Matthew chapter 2, beginning with, with verse number 1, the Bible says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east uh, to Jerusalem. My, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then having divinely been, having been divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Thank you for your word, Father. Thank you for those who have come together today to worship, to think about the arrival of a king and to celebrate his birth and to just in our hearts, God, uh, think about the implications of, of this season and what it means to us that you see us and know us and care about us and and visited us that you came here to this earth to have a life like ours and yet completely different god thank you that you're so uh that you love us in the way that you do god thank you for your holiness thank you for the uh, way that you've come to us to meet a need we could never meet ourselves and we pray that you'll speak through your word now and we ask it in christ's name amen it's interesting as we uh, year after year celebrate nativity or uh, Christmas that we have uh, really just two locations in scripture that give us a narrative of the birth of Christ there are four gospels and in Matthew and Luke of course we get all the information that we base Christmas plays on and that we 
uh, cobble together our understanding of what the birth of Christ was about. The Gospel of John, of course, uh, talks about this cosmic idea of who Jesus was. We, we don't really get a description of the history as much as we see that he's preexistent, that he was the Word who became flesh. And it, ju- it just takes a completely different approach to telling the story. And in Mark's Gospel, He doesn't address the birth narrative at all. He begins with John the Baptist and the baptism of Jesus. But in Matthew's gospel and in the gospel of Luke, there is enough information for us to speak about this and never get, it never become boring year after year after year. And so in the gospel that we'll see today, we see this story of the Magi. And what it's interesting to me as I read the Gospels that some of the uh, people that we encounter are religious outsiders. They're not insiders. They really appear like these guys do. We presume from what we know from someplace like Persia or what we would, uh, it would modern day Iran. We know that they came a great distance to uh, meet this child who was to be born, who they understood to be a king. And so the, the, uh, they're outsiders. Last week we looked at the idea of shepherds, also sort of outsiders, lower caste people who really didn't have a part in the story except that God gave them a part in the story, right? They show up and we talk about them over and over again. And when we think about the arrival of Jesus and the story that is being told, the narrative in uh, Scripture, we find that they're trying to underscore for us the prophetic ideas that had been there in the Old Testament. The prophets had been speaking about Messiah who was to come, and then he comes, and so we find over and over again in the small print and the details that the the uh, prophecies have come true in Jesus Christ, and so often in these narratives, there's citation like we see today of Old Testament prophecy. Micah chapter 5 is what they refer to. Micah, a prophet, spoke hundreds and hundreds of years before, and yet he spoke about the very birthplace of Messiah so that uh, the question could be answered, where is he to be born? And so when we align these historic narratives that we get up in Matthew and Luke, it's still kind of hard to cobble together exactly what was happening, what the sequence was, and those kinds of things. But we come away with these big, important ideas that when we think about the whole service of what's happening, we can see the symbol of joy, for example, today. We know that over and over again in the message that God brought to people, he said specific things would happen when Christ came, and one of those would be the experience of joy, that when he comes, joy is arriving with him. And so when we see these, uh, this story, those are the important takeaways, I think. So the first idea in this passage today that we see about uh, the coming of Christ is the Magi's arrival in Jerusalem. They come uh, uh, on a journey of months and months. That's how long it took them to travel by camel, caravan, horse, whatever they loaded up and brought. It was a great, great distance. So you probably heard people say, like for example, our I was looking at our display, I talked about it last week too, and they're always this way. People will say, well, you shouldn't put the wise men in the 
uh, nativity scene with the shepherds because they came later. You know, I mean, I'm like, really, who cares? Where you know, where are you going to put them? Like in one in the living room and one in, you know, some people are that literal, I guess. But but it's like probably everybody did not show up on the same night. But you know, put put them wherever you want. That's what I would say. You know, put them all. They all ended up there at some point in the in the story. And when you compare them, it's hard to say really when everybody came. Uh, we, for example, when you read this story, they, the, what, the Magi certainly go to Jerusalem first and inquire. We don't know who they inquired from. We know it eventually got to King Herod. And King Herod, we talked about some last week, and a bunch of you went to the journey and we saw the actors portraying King Herod over at Compassion Christian in Savannah. He did an awesome job, by the way. But what you know about him is he is unstable. He's unstable. He, imagine having a neighbor who murders his own family. That you would go like, they always show up and talk to people like that. Like, I never would have thought that, you know. Well, in Herod's case, everybody would have thought that. That he was capable of, of those kinds of things. And when you read the story, it's interesting about who, uh, who these people are. But... They, when they come to Jerusalem, it eventually gets to Herod the king that someone is here inquiring about this baby, a baby that's been born, the, uh, the king of the Jews. And so the, the uh, speculation is, okay, when did, they, when did they get to Bethlehem? Guess what? We don't know whether they went to Bethlehem or not, the wise men, the magi. We know that they came to Jerusalem, they inquired, and it caused a disturbance in uh, Jerusalem. Here's why it caused a disturbance, because uh, Herod is disturbed, and because he's disturbed, everybody else is consequently disturbed alongside him. But when he comes, he, uh, the Magi inquire about where the Christ is to be born. Uh, we don't know exactly when it occurred. Some people say, well, perhaps 41 days after the birth of Christ because uh, Mary's purification. A pregnant person, a pregnant woman had to go to Jerusalem. She had to present herself at the temple, and there was a, a ceremonial rite, a ritual of purification that occurred. Well, the Bible says in the Gospel of Matthew that happened at the end of 41 days. We know uh, probably that they didn't continue to stay in Bethlehem for a long time, but people think Jesus was older when the Magi came simply because they do the arithmetic, and they say, well, Herod murdered every child two, uh, two years old and uh, younger in Bethlehem and the surrounding regions and so consequently Christ must have been older but we don't know we know that it happened at a different time we know that they came we know that they uh, came a great distance they traveled uh, in a, a group that took a long time they were led by a spectacular sign as we'll talk about and they were committed to a noble pursuit. Those are the things we know for certain when we think about the Magi and we think about the uh, narrative of Christmas. And so, so, you know, when you read commentaries about the narratives, most people will say it's really hard to harmonize what happens in uh, Matthew and Luke. It's hard to read the story and 
go, okay, this is the sequence of events. But I don't think that's always what the Bible is trying to uh, present to us anyway. Yes, it needs to be uh, historically accurate, but I think what it's trying to show us is the importance of the big idea that God had you on his mind and God had me on his mind. And God himself made an amazing journey to come here to our world. So we see that they arrive in Jerusalem secondly in the story that we're given in the scripture about the birth of Jesus. We see Herod's panicky response and his duplicity. Again, this gets to his personality. He's troubled, it says, and all Jerusalem with him. He's troubled because he's threatened and unstable and the people around him are troubled because a threatened, unstable king does not a good neighbor make. You don't want this guy uh, to be feeling the things that he's feeling. But he takes a sudden interest in religion in the story. Here's this uh, barbarous, irreligious person who all of a sudden, when the Magi show up, is deeply interested in religion. He's really... uh, megalomaniac and it's interesting how often politicians uh take an interest in religion uh you know know, that they ordinarily would not have well maybe he set the precedent here for that but the scribes and the chief priests had a ready answer about where the birthplace of christ was that he calls together the chief priests and scribes and he says where is i've been you know these Magi have come from a great distance and they've said to us that the uh, king of the Jews is going to be born. Where is the birthplace? And they have a ready answer. They don't even have to think about it. They say the prophet says that the king uh, is to the Messiah is to be born in Bethlehem. You, Bethlehem, afraid of. Uh, Micah says, though you're tiny among the nations, out of you will come forth to me one whose goings forth are of old from everlasting. That's how the prophet says it in Micah chapter 5 verse 2. Well, the only way to be from everlasting is to be God. And so God is telling us in this narrative, look, this is what is happening. The one who's from everlasting has made this journey to come here to earth. But the fascinating thing to me about the chief priests and scribes in this in, in the Bible is that even though they have a ready answer and it's a short distance to Bethlehem, there's absolutely no record that they went. They didn't go. And that, I mean, it's amazing to me. Like, here are these guys. They have insight. They have, they are academically informed, but for them, it's nothing more than data. You know, it's possible to know things in just that way, spiritual realities that for you, they're just data. Uh, they had scholarship. They had insight. But what was missing in their life was worship. God's not interested in just us having a head full of information. He's interested in our worship. He's, he, what God really is trying to do is take rebels, that's us, because the Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and there's not one righteous. He's trying to take rebels and from them create friends. But it, it doesn't happen just through intellectual understanding. There's a different uh, experience that has to occur. So even though the, these guys had scholarship, they didn't have worship. It was information. It was data. It wasn't life-changing. 
And until it becomes life-changing for us, it hasn't lined up with God's in, intent for us too. So we know that Herod was a charlatan and a chameleon. He just played the part of a, a seeker. But his motivation is really paranoia and uh, self-preservation. And that's true on through. This Herod... Uh, only reigned for a short time later, historians tell us. When you read about Herod in the Bible, later on Jesus will talk about Herod. It's not the same Herod. That, this is the one they called Herod the Great. But later on, Jesus talked about um, Herod Antipas. He called him that fox. You remember that? Herod wants to meet with Jesus. He says, you go tell that fox that I'm working cures and performing miracles. And on the third day, I, I'll raise again i'll be risen again that's a whole different herod than this herod because they were treacherous and murderous and it was uh, this same another herod well really the same one that jesus called that fox who we remember had john the baptist beheaded in the uh, gospels we know that john the baptist was uh, uh had spoken against Herod's marriage to his brother Philip's wife and uh, he he went there <laughs> and this Herod's wife Salome was very uh, angry that that had occurred and so her daughter dances in front of Herod Antipas and he's so moved by really by lust that he says ask me anything up to half my kingdom and and it'll be given, and she asked for John the Baptist's head on a platter. And so this Herod Antipas decapitated John the Baptist. And so the, who these people were were basically, we said last week, imposters because they, they weren't really, uh, they, should, they had no right to be kings over Israel to begin with. It was just a position given to them by Rome. And they were power-hungry lackeys, but still dangerous in a caged animal kind of way. That's who they were. So when we see that the, the magi end up before Herod, it's created some, you know, if we're just watching a movie, this is where the violins start playing and all the dramatic th things are ramping up because we know that, oh no, there's peril on the other side of that encounter. But the third part of this uh, narrative that we see in, our, in the scripture that we read is the Magi's example of faithful worship. We see how that they are different than almost anybody else in the story that we're reading. They, uh, God uses some weird astrological phenomenon to guide them. Nobody knows. We know it's supernatural. We know that it's a... Uh, it appears to be a star, but it also moves, and it's like um, first century GPS, you know. It's like they look up, and wherever it is, that's where they go. They follow along, and God uses this to lead them to Jesus. So it's interesting as I think about that, that God is not limited. If God is limited, we've got the wrong God. He's not limited. He, it's absurd once a person admits the reality of God as the miraculous cause of the universe and all that it contains to say God can't. A Christian's position, our position is that God created from himself, that God is before everything else, but God spoke all of the matter in the world into existence and that God created people 
as a special act of creation so that we're, we bear the image of Christ. We're made in his image, in God's image. It makes us unique among every other created uh, thing. And he created us and put us in this world and gave us dominion in this world, which means that we are to manage it as God's servants. We, we, the places that we are, God gave us responsibility to manage it for his glory. And so he made people. He made us unique. He's, he created everything. And so the only thing that God can't do is to act inconsistently with his own nature. The rest of anything is on the table when, uh, when we think about who God is. God's never going to do anything evil. He's never going to act inconsistently with his own nature. But to say, well, God couldn't form some kind of luminous uh, light and put it in the air and guide these people is to not acknowledge who God really is. Because that's the only thing God won't do is act outside of his own character. The Magi seeing the star rejoiced with mega joy. That's the word. The word mega comes into the English from places like this. When it says they rejoice with great joy, they had mega joy. This is, to me, proof of their motivation. One commentator that I read speculated that the, for the Magi, this was kind of statecraft. He's like, it's um, polite diplomacy. That's what they're doing. Is that They left home and they came, but it's really just what any uh, ambassador from another place should do. It's just polite statecraft. But I, I don't think that at all. I think what they were on was the penultimate spiritual quest. I think they left home knowing that what they were doing was the event of their life. It was That's why they had great joy, is because they were on the journey of a lifetime. And their emotional response indicates that they found not just the star, but their God-given purpose in life. And that's what this quest really is about. And I don't know why, but from the very first, you know, I became a follower of Jesus in July of 1987. And I remember very clearly the first Christmas that I celebrated with my family after knowing why I was doing it, knowing that it was like the play. It wasn't about me getting something. It was that something unbelievable had been done for me. My parents were both still living we always had a big Christmas with my, my folks, but it was the first time that I can remember like knowing, okay, I know why we're doing this. I know what this is about. So I know the feeling that they had when the Bible says they had great joy. I had that too. For the first time in my life, I was experiencing the, the purpose for which I had been created and was connected to God. My sins were forgiven. My life was different. And it's been a process of God continuing to change me but I remember that and I think that's the kind of joy they had the kind of joy that isn't derailed or deterred by circumstances it's not put off by hardship because nobody should ever tell us when we discover the purpose for which we've been created in Jesus all of a sudden all your problems are you know just going to go away all of a sudden that's not how life is it's still going to have all the same difficulties and challenges but we have come to know the one who is the Prince of Peace, who says, I'll never leave you, forsake you, who's always with us through this journey and most importantly has afforded for us the cleansing and forgiveness of our sins by offering himself for us and being 
put into a tomb and raised from the dead on the third day. So it's interesting the gifts that they bring. The, the Bible talks about gold, uh, frankincense, which is you know a word we only are familiar with through the Bible, and myrrh. And and people will say there's significance in the gifts. And one of the significances is in the frankincense is that it was given as a way to anoint people for burial because they didn't embalm in the way that we embalm people. And so there's an anticipation in the gift that they provided of this death, that this baby that's lying in a manger, that his, he is born to die. His destiny is a cross, and his destiny is a tomb, and then his destiny is resurrection and rule, which is what he does. He rules, and he lives to make intercession for those who... Uh, worship him and and love him the scripture describes our joy in jesus this way though uh, this is in first peter uh, chapter 1 verse 8 though you have not seen him you love him and even though you do not see him now you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible joy when they found jesus they worshiped and gave to him from the gifts of their Treasures, the scripture says, They're, they brought out from their treasures these gifts and, and made them, gave them to this family. So one thing we see is that their worship was costly. You know, often uh, we want something in the form of spirituality that really doesn't make demands on our life, but that's not what we see about biblical worship. Biblical worship makes demands on a person's life. Think about what Jesus said. Jesus said, if anyone wants to follow me, let him do what? Let him take up his cross daily and follow me. He says, if anybody wants to preserve their life, they'll lose it. But whoever intentionally loses their life, keeps it or finds it for eternal life. So we think about what spirituality means. What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to follow Jesus? It's costly. For these guys, it was costly. It cost them in terms of the commitment of journey. It cost them out of their treasures. And so it's going to be costly for you and I as well. I think about gratitude and how it's expressed in the life of a person. You know, uh, sometimes we think gratitude is just like our lips moving. Like I said thank you, but I think... Gratitude gets our limbs moving too. You know, it doesn't just get our, our lips moving. It gets our limbs moving. It gets our life moving uh, in a, a Godward direction, we could say. It moves the heart, but it also moves the mouth and the limbs. So God's providence, when we read the story, is all over nativity. Because the, uh, it's interesting how often... Um, in scripture people have weird dreams I have weird dreams all the time you know I wake up and I think why in the world did I dream that weird thing but they have weird dreams with meaning and often God shows up and he directs people as he does probably if they were uh, if they were students of human nature they were able to figure out that Herod was not a good guy but the angels, you know, God in the uh, narrative confirms that to them and tells them do not go back to give a report to him because his intent is not to come in to worship the king but to try to destroy him. And so we see the satanic opposition to God's purpose from, you know, the very beginning. And they, the, so they, uh, we see God's providence, the way that he is directing this uh, story. His purposes are evident, and 
even though evil tries to have its day, God cannot be thwarted. I thought about that this week. Aren't you glad God cannot be thwarted? There may be times when in our lives even we feel like, well, a setback has happened. Guess what? Good news. God can't be thwarted. God's purpose is going to prevail. And even if uh, the whole rest of our life is disappointment after disappointment, God can't be thwarted. And God is going to honor his word. And God has come to rescue his people. And sometimes his rescue, the full realization of it, is still out there in the future. But there's an aspect of it now that really is a reason for joy, and that is knowing. I had a conversation with somebody this past week that was, uh, you know, basically we're talking about the importance of worship, public worship, and being connected in spiritual community. And this person had come to a place where they said, well, I just think one day it's going to be me and God. I'm going to be standing with God. And basically he was trying to say to me, I don't need spiritual community. And I, I just think it's not uh, an accurate idea to, uh, to Scripture because if I thought about my wife and just standing there with God, I don't know that that shouldn't be a terrifying thought to somebody. You know, that it's just me and God at the end. Well, that should be terrifying unless... The, we understand the idea that he advocates for us when we know him. But also when we know him. So in other words, I'm not standing there without an advocate. I have an advocate when I'm standing before God. But the whole idea that we get of uh, in the Bible is that God calls us to connect to others in spiritual community. The word for church can't be understood except in the idea that there is this uh, gathering and connection uh, where God uses the lives of other people and uses us too and our gifts to uh, try to affect the kingdom. We think about the lighting of the joy candle and the idea of joy in Scripture. I read dozens of quotes about joy, most of them literary and most of them not satisfying. And it seems that joy is better experienced than described. I think that's what I thought. But since I'm trying to describe it, here's what I would say. Is that joy is intricately intertwined with discovering your purpose in, in God's design. That's where joy comes from. From knowing your purpose in God's design. And God's design is inseparable from Christ. No way you can ever discover God's purpose if Jesus Christ is not the focal point of it. That's where it all starts. And real joy is only possible when our lives are founded on the hope that comes from Jesus. And joy is an emotional expression of the soul's satisfaction in Jesus. That's what joy is. It's, it, it's an emotional response to the fact that my soul is satisfied in the Messiah, Jesus. So like the Magi, it's worth the journey to find Jesus and to find joy. We're going to have a time of commitment. It's what we always do at the end of our messages at, the, at this time in our service. So uh, when we think about commitment, God calls us to follow Jesus. He calls us to follow him as baptized uh, believers in him. It's a public way that a person identifies with who Jesus Christ is and we say, I obey you. This is a step of obedience, and I surrender my life to you. So it may be that at this time of commitment, that's a step you need to take, and I would be happy to pray with you, and this congregation would absolutely celebrate with you 
if that's the commitment that you're uh, that you need to make. If there's some other need for prayer, then this this is a, just a public way of responding to what God is doing in your in your life. And um, I want to pray for us, and then we'll sing a song as we. Uh, dismiss and conclude father we're so grateful for the uh, narrative the stories of christmas and their historical uh communication to us of what you did and what you're doing and thank you father that you're uh, you give joy and it's deep-seated and it's uh, real because it's connected to a person and all that he did and so i pray that you'll uh just work in our lives now, God, that we can be aligned with your voice and your will, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand with me as we sing?